The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. Is it true that there is an original Hebrew Gospel of Matthew? And if so, do we have it today? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. We are going to have a fascinating broadcast today. We're going to dig into a controversial subject and do our best to get some wisdom on it, catch us on some Jewish-related news, and take your Jewish-related calls and questions. This is Michael Brown. Welcome to the broadcast. Here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-348-7884. Any Jewish-related question of any kind whatsoever, glad to take your call. Of course, if you differ with me on something, if you want to challenge me on a point that I've made, by all means, give us a call. Okay, you may have heard the claim that this new translation of the Gospel of Matthew is based on the original Hebrew text or the original Hebrew Matthew has been discovered or something like that. That's bogus. We do not have an ancient, original Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew. We simply do not have that. It does not exist. However, there are many ancient traditions in the early church that reference either a Gospel that Matthew had written in Hebrew or the Gospel of the Hebrews in Hebrew or a collection of of sayings of the Lord that Matthew had put together in Hebrew and that may or may not have been identical with our Gospel of Matthew. Most would say, no, it's not the same as that. And we have later medieval manuscripts, so you're talking many, many centuries after the writing of the New Testament in Hebrew, that were uh, some by the church but others by the rabbinic community in their interaction with Christian missionaries and wanted to refute them so that they could have Matthew in their, in their own academic language, Hebrew, they translated it into Hebrew. And there are some who claim that within those manuscripts, there are hints of the early original Matthew. So I want to try to sort this out, but, but first and foremost, let me say this again. If anyone claims that their translation is based on the original Hebrew Matthew, they are wrong. They are either pulling the wool over your eyes or they themselves have been misled. But we do not have an original Hebrew Matthew. You say, well, do we have like ancient copies? Like we have of the, we don't have the original Greek New Testament, the the original books in Greek. We have copies of copies and, and, and you can trace it far back. Yes, that's true. We don't have anything like that with this. We don't have something where you can go back to the 1st or 2nd or 3rd or 4th or 5th century and say, ah, here are the actual Hebrew texts. We don't have that, all right? Some would try to argue that when Hebrew is mentioned, it actually means Aramaic, but let's, let's just take it at face value and say that it's referring to Hebrew. Here's what we do know uh, from ancient traditions, and I was checking to see what was available online 
so that I could refer you to certain sources to look at afterwards to study a little bit more deeply. And uh, it turns out that the article on Wikipedia has a lot of decent information. There's a lot that it's missing, but it has a lot of decent information. So we're actually going to go there and then to a couple of other online sources. Um, in more recent years, George Howard, a New Testament scholar, uh, this going back a few decades now, put out a book on the Hebrew gospel and uh, the, the original Hebrew Matthew and speculating on that and looking at a medieval source and saying, hey, does this contain uh, part? It was, it was a rabbinic source, so a, a, a translation by the rabbis, but perhaps it contains some of the original Hebrew Matthew. And then that became popularized for a wider audience by the Karaite scholar Nehemiah Gordon. So that's why you've heard about this more. And they're both good scholars who do serious work. The question is, how far do we go with these things? How do we evaluate them? So let's look over on Wikipedia. Again, not where I'd normally go as an academic source, but uh, there's some reliable information. So it says this, uh, first major section, basis of the Hebrew gospel hypothesis, Papias and the early church fathers. So it says the idea that some or all of the gospels were originally written in a language other than Greek begins with Papias of Hierapolis, so he is someone that was in close proximity uh, to John the Elder, which some would say is the same as the Apostle John. Some of the early witnesses, there was overlap in their lives. And it says in a passage with several ambiguous phrases, he wrote, Matthew collected the oracles, logia, sayings over about Jesus in the Hebrew language, perhaps alternatively Hebrew style, and each one interpreted them as best as he could. So again, some have said, when he said Hebrew, he actually meant Aramaic, which was the language of the Hebrews. And there, there are arguments that can be made for that. Uh, others would say, no, at that point in time when you said that, you meant Hebrew. So let's just take it as meaning Hebrew. Others would say, well, it, it means in Hebrew style, but because other early church leaders attest to a gospel of the Hebrews or seeing a gospel of the Hebrews or a Hebrew Matthew or some connection like that, and they'll actually even quote from it at times, then that would say, okay, something did exist. Something certainly did exist. The question is, how does it relate to our Matthew that we have in Greek today, and how much of it can be reconstructed? Those are the questions to ask. So as you scroll down a little bit in the Wikipedia article, it mentions some quotes by church fathers. Uh, Matthew, who is also Levi, this is Jerome speaking, so Jerome is now uh, late 4th, early 5th centuries. Matthew is also Levi, and who from a publican came to be an apostle, first of all composed the gospel of Christ in Judea in the Hebrew language and characters for the benefit of those of the circumcision who had believed, who translated after that in Greek is not sufficiently ascertained. Moreover, the Hebrew itself is preserved to this day in the library at Caesarea, which the martyr Pamphilius so diligently collected. I also was allowed by the Nazarenes, so these were Messi ancient Messianic Jews, Jewish followers of Jesus, who used this volume in the Syrian city of Berea to copy it. Then Jerome, so 382, he, Shaul, being a Hebrew, wrote in Hebrew, that is his own tongue, and most fluently, while things which were eloquently written in Hebrew were more eloquently turned into Greek. And then uh, Irenaeus, so second century, wrote, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own di dialect, and it says that, he then says that the Ebionites, they were a heretical Jewish group that believed in Jesus, that they used that as well. And then Origen, so early 3rd century, first to be written was by Matthew, 
who was once a tax collector, but later an apostle of Jesus Christ, who published it in Hebrew for Jewish believers. So there are a number of traditions attesting to that. I want to go to another website, uh, earlychristianwritings.com, and it has a section on the gospel of the Hebrews. So we have this attestation that Matthew wrote a gospel in Hebrew. Was it just the sayings of the Lord? Many would argue, no, that that phrase there from Papias actually is referring to a, a whole gospel, a whole book. So it could be that he passed on in Hebrew, uh, original sayings of Jesus, and, and, and put them out as a source. It could also be that it's saying he wrote a whole gospel in Hebrew. So let's, let's take it at the maximum, that he wrote a Hebrew gospel. Is that the same as the gospel of the Hebrews? That's also mentioned. And if so, do we have that today? So let's look at a couple more quotes that are found here. Oh, let's see. Um, Okay. So Irenaeus, let's look at this one a little more depth. Irenaeus, but the Ebionites, so Ebionites denied the deity of Jesus and rejected teachings of Paul. The Ebionites use only that gospel, which is according to Matthew, and repudiate the Apostle Paul, calling him an apostate from the law. Then he says, For the Ebonites who use only that gospel, which is according to Matthew, are convicted out of the very book as not holding right views about the Lord. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, uh, even or also in the gospel according to the Hebrews, is written the saying, He that wondereth shall reign, and he that reigneth shall rest. So that's a saying that we don't have anywhere else, elsewhere unattested. Clement also this, for those words have the same force as these. He shall not cease from seeking until he find, and having found, he will be amazed, and having been amazed, will reign, and having reigned, will rest. So, where does this saying come from? It's attested elsewhere as going back to Jesus, but we don't have it in any of our current Gospels. Um, Origen says this, and if any accept the Gospel according to the Hebrews, where the Savior himself saith, even now did my mother the Holy Spirit take me by one of my hairs and carried me away into the great Mount Thabor, he will be perplexed, etc. So Jesus speaking about his mother, the Holy Spirit, is, is that a heretical concept, even though spirit can sometimes be feminine? Is, is that a heretical concept, which would then tell you this is one of the heretical gospels, and there were many such in the early church? Um, so anyway, there, there are lists. Uh, some years back in the 90s, I really researched this in depth and got all of the original sources that I could find. There's actually a compilation of all of the early church leaders and what they had to say about Jewish believers, about a gospel of the Hebrews, about a Hebrew Matthew. So here's what we know. There was at least one Hebrew gospel that some of the early church leaders had seen. And here and there, they'll refer to it where it seems to clarify a discrepancy. For example, in Matthew 23, critics will often point out that when Jesus speaks ab- about Zechariah, son of Berechiah, being martyred, that that's the wrong name that's being used there. That's referring to, to the Zechariah in Zechariah chapter, uh, mentioned in Zechariah chapter 1, not the Zechariah who's martyred in Second Chronicles 24. So that's a mistake, and it proves that Jesus misspoke, or Matthew miswrote, or scribes got it wrong, etc. And yet you have some attestation from early church leaders saying, no, the original said something different. The original was in harmony with what we read in the Hebrew Bible. That'd be interesting. Nehemiah Gordon has pointed to places, and George Howard has pointed to places in some of the medieval manuscripts that 
differ from the Greek we have in a way that would not make sense unless there was some other source behind it. But this is all speculation. This is all speculation. What we do know is the, is the Matthew that we have is preserved in Greek. And many scholars who believe that there was an original Hebrew Matthew say, yeah, that was one thing, and it's not the same as our Greek Matthew. That, that we're talking about two separate sources here. So all I'm saying is it's complex. We know that there was at least something back then that others had seen connected to Matthew in Hebrew. There was also the Gospel of the Hebrews. Is that separate or the same? And then there are medieval manuscripts. So many, many, many centuries later that, that seem to have some different readings. We don't know where they came from. Do we have an original Hebrew Matthew? No, we don't, we don't, we don't. And did it underlie the Greek Matthew we have? We don't know. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. What beautiful harmony, what beautiful words that he keeps Israel in neither slumber nor sleep. May the Lord fulfill the desire of the hearts of those religious Jewish men as they sing about the God whom they deeply want to please. May God reveal his grace and goodness and truth to them in fullness. So I pray for each of us. 866-34-TRUTH. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. 866-348-7884. Any Jewish-related question of any kind, my joy to take your calls. So you say, well, well, where does this leave us? You've told us a lot, but you really haven't told us anything definitive. Well, we, we don't know anything definitive because it's based on interpretation of sources. And even those few words and fragments that I've read, you know, little quotes here and there, and, and, and a few others could have been read, they're interpreted in, in quite a few different ways, in fact. There are different ways of reading them and understanding them. But again, at most, there was an original Hebrew gospel that Matthew wrote that was widely circulated and that was kept and preserved for centuries and was used by early Jewish believers. Even if Aramaic was their spoken language or Greek was their spoken language, sacred writings were primarily written in Hebrew. Now, the Talmud, the Mishnah is, is, is Hebrew. The Talmud is primarily Aramaic. Uh, but still, the, the Bible, writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this, this continues the tradition of Hebrew as the sacred language. And to this day, uh, even in places where, where Hebrew was not spoken for centuries and centuries, Hebrew was still the sacred language of the Jewish people for study. So this would, this would make perfect sense. Again, most scholars that, whose works I've studied over the decades do not believe that the Matthew that we have in Greek today is a translation from the Hebrew. They believe it's written in Greek as the original language. So that would mean either Matthew wrote something that was different in Hebrew, again, if, if we're saying that he wrote them both, that he wrote something different in Hebrew, 
Uh, one scholar has tried to associate that with the so-called Q source. Again, this is all speculation because we don't actually have this, but, but a large collection of, of teachings of Jesus and life of Jesus that other gospel authors drew on. There's a tremendous amount of scholarship here and a tremendous amount of ink that's been spilled uh, writing about this. But, but please understand this. If, if you read popular books about this or, wow, this has been discovered or this is definitive, take it all with a grain of salt. Take it all with a grain of salt. There are things we can be very dogmatic about, things we can be fairly sure about, and things that we have more questions about. So I'm all for the wondering and the speculating. For example, an argument that would be raised by a George Howard or a Nehemiah Gordon would be that you have word plays, Hebrew word plays, in, in the Hebrew gospel, again, one of the medieval manuscripts, and, and there, there are quite a few of these over the centuries. But you have some word plays in a document that purportedly was a translation from the, the Greek or whatever language the rabbis were working with into Hebrew from Matthew. Now, if they didn't believe Matthew was inspired and if they were trying to argue against Matthew, why would they have these nice little word plays? That's normally a, a translator that's trying to bring out the beauty of the original. Those are fair questions to ask. Could that have preserved an earlier tradition? And these manuscripts preserve earlier traditions. It's speculation. It's fascinating. And I've, I've used uh, ancient testimony, for example, in a, in a video refuting Rabbi Tovia Singer regarding Matthew 23. I've said, hey, here's an early attestation from the early church saying, no, the original just said this. And then later scribes uh, added this. But the original just said this in Hebrew. Uh, that's because we actually have a quote from an early church leader attesting to it. It's not later speculation. Uh, interestingly, the later manuscripts... The, the later medieval Hebrew Matthews, uh, the ones I've looked at anyway, correspond to the Greek, not to the alleged original Hebrew. So that raises questions about the authenticity of the later manuscripts. Maybe they are just translations from the Greek or from whatever language the rabbis were working with, as has been assumed over the, over the decades. So it's something to study, to look at, to consider, but please don't do these two things. One, don't think, well, the Greek New Testament we have is unreliable. No, that's how God preserved it for us. Better preserved than any book in the ancient world. That's how God preserved it for us. And, and from a thousand different angles, we know that if not all of it originally written in, in Greek, the vast bulk of it originally written in Greek. So don't mistrust the Greek New Testament that God gave us. That's one. Two, don't believe anyone who tells you that their new translation is based on the original Hebrew or Hebrew and Aramaic sources. We do not have those. And three, don't buy into any theory that now changes in dramatic ways the meaning of New Testament texts based on an alleged original Hebrew, which doesn't even exist. Don't fall into any of those three errors. Just warning. That I can tell you dogmatically. Everything else, study, look into, fascinating. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, we'll stay on the subject. Craig in Louisville, Kentucky, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, thank you for having me on. Sure. We've actually, uh, we've, we've spoken before, um, but I appreciate you bringing up the, the Hebrew Matthew uh, issue. 
And, and Craig, are you are you on your sir? Are you are you on your phone speaking to me directly on your phone? I am on my phone. Yes. Oh, okay, got it. So not on speakerphone or anything else, because just no, a little hard. No, let me let me let me yeah. try to take off the Wi-Fi. Uh, okay, yeah, just a little hard to hear you, and I want to make sure that all of our listeners can hear you clearly. So we'll give you absolutely. We'll give you, that's better. Can that's definitely better. Now? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I followed the Hemia's uh, work as well. Um, and so, like, so, for instance, when you're bringing up the word plays or the Hebraic word puns, um, I agree that it's not uh, concrete evidence that Matthew was written first. Um, but, so, for instance, in Shemto's Hebrew Matthew, there are seven word puns. Um, and one of those seven is the same word pun that exists within the Greek, which is Petra, Petra. Yep. Right? Um, but I guess my concern about this whole topic is, is, uh, is that I could see how Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox would be adverse to considering if Matthew was written in Hebrew first, simply because the copy that we have now that exists, or the number of copies that we have now that exist now, that possibly could have dated to before a Greek. Yeah, so, so here's the thing, and I just got to jump in. Somehow, the, the, uh, I wanted to allow you to get that out, but with respect to our listeners, somehow the phone connection was still very weak, and it was very difficult to hear. So we, we try to be sensitive to everybody's ears, of course. So... Uh, None of this touches on that subject whatsoever. In, in other words, we don't have any ancient sources that, in writing that predate our Greek copies of Matthew. None. And we know that the early church constantly quotes from the Greek Matthew. So, so no one's doubting the authenticity of that. When, when the Gospels were recognized as canonical, when, when the early church would, would be reading them regularly in their services, when they were looked at and believed to be apostolic, it was the Greek Matthew. So no one's disputing that. Was there also a Hebrew Matthew? Maybe, maybe. But that which was, and that would have been used by, by groups of Jewish believers, some who were mainstream and some who were heretical. But nobody's disputing that the early church had a Greek Matthew. That's, that's not up for debate. No one, no one is in the early church is saying, oh, we don't have the original, we can't find the original Hebrew Matthew. All we have is this, this lousy Greek translation. No, the, the one they're quoting from, and, and, and the, the, what would be called the Greek fathers, as opposed to the Latin fathers, the Greek fathers are quoting the Greek Matthew as we have it today as the Bible. So that's not in dispute. As for the word plays, well, that one that you mentioned in Matthew 16 with, with Peter and Petra, so, so rock, little rock, or piece of the rock, whatever, that's important to understand. In, in other words, it would make sense to translate it like that into Hebrew to convey what the Greek wordplay was. That one would make perfect sense. It would be odd if there were Hebrew wordplays when there wasn't one in the Greek. Why would the rabbis do that? But there, there are other answers. But, but again, thank you for the call because it enables me to reinforce this. There is no disputing the authenticity of Matthew's Greek gospel. 
there is no question that when the early church leaders are quoting from it in Greek, and when the early church is recognizing it as, as part of this new canon of Scripture with Mark and with Luke and with John, etc., and with Paul's writings, that that's the book they were talking about. Was there also a Hebrew gospel? And if we could find that, would it be of interest as well to compare, to, to look at the two? Absolutely. That would be amazing and wonderful. But it doesn't take away for a split second from the authenticity or scriptural verity of Matthew in Greek. Hey, thank you for the call. Much appreciated. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. We'll be right back on the other side of the break taking your Jewish-related questions and calls and comments. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Praises to the God of Israel in Hebrew. Michael Brown, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. If you have a Jewish related question of any kind, Hebrew-related, related to Israel today, related to Messianic prophecy, Jewish background to the New Testament, anything at all, give me a call, 866-34-TRUTH. So a headline from Haaretz, so one of the leading historic and, of course, famously left-leaning publications in Israel, but just reporting the news here, Israel now quarantines all arrivals from U.S., and 41 other countries. It says arrivals to Israel will have to self-isolate for at least seven days and return at least two negative COVID tests, and anyone found breaking quarantine will be subject to a 5,000 shekel fine. U.S. earlier this week added Israel to its highest COVID risk level due to Delta variant spike in cases. Okay, so as we're trying to sort this out, on the one hand, Israel really did a lot to get the vast amount of its population vaccinated and in many ways said, hey, we're getting back to life as usual. And then no sooner was that happening that the the Delta variant began to spread. And now there were concerns about where that's heading. And with the first wave of vaccines, that that wouldn't be as effective against the Delta variant, etc. So all I can say is the plot thickens. If you missed the broadcast yesterday, we opened the phones for the entire broadcast for you to call in and give your views, pro or con, with regard to the vaccine. And my official view, which I posted on Twitter and Facebook earlier today, remains the same. Do the research. Ask God for wisdom. Talk to people that you respect. Get their opinions and make an informed decision. You say, Dr. Brown, what have you done personally? That's my personal choice. You say, well, why don't you tell everyone? Because I don't think that I have the right to influence you with my personal choice because this is your life. This is your family. 
This is your job in terms of decisions that you're making. And I simply do not have sufficient expertise here. I'll go out on a limb all the time when it's appropriate, when I feel confident about something. It's risky, but if I'm confident, I'll do it. And I'm involved in controversy day and night. There's not a day that goes by, probably online, not not a minute that goes by that someone's not attacking me for something I believe or said. I've got millions of words out there in print, millions of words out there on the air where I'm staking out positions. But I do not have a position to stake out here. And again, in something like this, when someone might just say, well, Dr. Brown, we respect you. Or, or Mike, you know, we, we look at you as an example. My personal choices here are my personal choices. If something happens where, where I change that view, I, I want to shout from the rooftop a warning against vaccines or shout from the rooftop, everybody get vaccinated. I'll do that. Obviously, I don't like the government pressure. I, I know pro-vaccine people that don't like the government pressure. But I'm simply reporting to you update from Israel. You say, well, what would happen if, if, if to take a tour to Israel, everyone's required to be vaccinated on the tour group, and how would you handle that? We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Interestingly enough, and I'm going to go to your phones momentarily, when I posted my position on Twitter, one woman responded with, you're the smartest man on social media. I said, yeah, the, the less I say, the smarter I appear to be. Yeah, and the less, less times you put your foot in your mouth. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Adam in Montreal. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, how are you doing today? Uh, doing well, thank you. Yes, so I just have a quick question on uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. So uh, coming from a uh, you know Pentecostal background, and oftentimes you hear evangelists preach out of Deuteronomy 28 very uh, enthusiastically. And I'd just like to know how you... Uh, rightly interpret that chapter? Are we to apply it primarily to Israel, and how would we apply it to also New Testament, uh, you know, New Testament believers as well? Yep. Uh, and, and friends, I, I apologize for uh, some of the quality of the phone calls. Sometimes there's just an issue that comes up, and we are doing our best to resolve it. But Adam, thank you for the, the, crest, the question. It's a very important one. Deuteronomy 28, which lays out the blessings and the curses for obedience to the Torah, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And in keeping with ancient Near Eastern customs and in harmony with Leviticus 26, the curses are much longer than the blessings, devastatingly so. It's always overwhelming for me to read those, listen to them on audio, on the Bible, devastating to hear those words because the curses are so overwhelming. All right, how do these apply to us as believers today. On the one hand, to the extent that there are principles God wants us to follow, following those good principles will bring blessing. Neglecting those good principles will cause us to miss out on blessing. In other words, if you live by the book of Proverbs, on average, if a million people live by the book of Proverbs, on average, the vast majority will live longer than the ones who flaunt the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. Look at Deuteronomy 28 the same way, because we are not under the law in that sense. We are not under the curse of the law. Messiah took that curse for us, and we stand justified by his works, 
not by ours. So look at it as a principle as opposed to a literal being under this. That's number one. Number two, understand that we are in this world and not of it. It is different than Israel, which stood as the lead nation. We often, for our obedience, will be hated and rejected and will suffer. So in terms of outward prosperity, while there are principles from Proverbs that apply, generosity, hard work, those things bring prosperity, often in a New Testament setting, our obedience causes sacrifice, persecution, opposition. So we have to apply things accurately and fairly. As for Israel, Israel is not living under the benefits of the new covenant through the cross. Israel has not received God's grace through the Messiah. And therefore, to the extent that Israel flaunts God's word and God's ways, there will be judgment that comes as a result of that. This is especially what ultra-Orthodox Jews would believe. In the early days of Hitler's rise to power, when he began to persecute Jewish people and began to to pass like the Nuremberg Laws and other things and restrictions on their freedoms, there were leading ultra-Orthodox rabbis of the day who said, this is because we Jews, especially the secular German Jews and others, have, have flaunted God's laws and this is judgment on us. Now, now, the idea that the Holocaust was divine judgment on disobedient Jews is considered utterly, utterly abhorrent by the vast majority of Jews today. And even many religious Jews would not hold to that in light of the horror and the madness of what took place. But look at it again on larger principles. Is God dealing with the Jewish people explicitly as if they were under the Sinai covenant? I would say no because grace has come through the cross and ultimately the issue is accepting or rejecting the cross. However, the same larger principles apply and and that Jewish people that seek to be God-honoring and God-fearing can expect longer life and health, say, than those that flaunt his laws and commands. It's something, uh, last point, as far as how God has dealt with Israel over the centuries, under Sinai covenant or not, It's a discussion that I've never really had with other Messianic Jewish leaders, but I'd be curious to know where they all stand on this. Maybe one day I'll I'll do a show just focused on that. Thank you, sir, for the question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Anthony in Des Moines, Iowa. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Uh, My question is, I've been kind of curious about this for a long time, and I know you've got a good answer for me. As we get the different information from Scripture regarding what we call the end times, we learn that the temple in Jerusalem must be rebuilt before Jesus returns. Now, my question is, since the temples are from the Old Covenant time, so to speak, And when Jesus died and was resurrected, he established a new and better covenant. What is the connection? Right. So, number one, off the top of your head, could you give me any verses that that indicate to you that the temple must be rebuilt before Jesus returns? I don't have Scripture in front of me. I I know that I've read it. 
Okay. And I know that it's scriptural, but I just don't have it in front of me, Dr. Brown, and I thought you would, perhaps you would know what it was. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So the reason I ask it is it's not quite as explicit as many think. I do expect it to happen personally, and it's based on the Olivet Discourse, so Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, which on the one hand speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, so roughly 40 years after the, the, the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Uh, but it also speaks of the events at the end of the age. It's, it's kind of like a mirror image again at the end of the age, which would suggest that there is uh, uh, a temple that's been built as well. We know other passages speak of a Jewish Jerusalem, the end of Matthew 23 and Zechariah 12. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2, it says the Antichrist, the man of sin, will set himself up in the temple of God as God. Now, you could say, well, that's metaphorical for the church is the temple, but I, I believe it's the literal temple in Jerusalem. So this is something that is important to Judaism. I do not believe it's important to God in terms of atonement sacrifice. As you said, the once and for all sacrifice has been completed at the cross. There is not a need for bulls or goats to take away sin. The blood of Messiah has been applied in the heavenlies to get us eternal redemption. So this is something that is important for Judaism. This is something that will tie in with, with end time, end time deception, end time seeking, etc. cetera. Um, how it could actually happen, the temple would be built where the current Dome on the Rock is and Al-Aqsa Mosque and all that. There's debate as to how that would unfold. Some claim there's another location for the temple. That, that I don't believe. But it's not important, sir, in God's sight for our atonement or relationship with God. It's important for the fulfillment of prophecy and for the full cycle of things and then for Jesus to come back at the culmination of that. But it's not for our benefit, our forgiveness, our atonement. Thank you, sir, for the question. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Jerusalem still matters. Jerusalem still matters. Pray for the salvation of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Pray for God's purposes for Jerusalem, which will also mean blessing for the nations. God cares about the whole world. But let's understand this. He chose Israel to bring the Messiah into the world. Through this nation, he brought the Messiah into the world to bring the knowledge of God to the nations. And he has not forgotten his promises to Israel. Join us as we are on the front lines of outreach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yes, it's terribly insulting for, for me to use that term in the eyes of religious Jews and others that say they're not lost sheep. Of course, from their perspective, I'm, I'm an idolater. I'm, I'm following a false God and leading people astray. So we have very, very deep differences, and we each speak them with tears. But we continue to pray for God to open hearts and minds for Yeshua the Messiah to be revealed. Thank you, all of you who stand with us in prayer. All of you who help us financially, thank you. Your gifts, your prayers are helping us reach Jewish people every single day with the good news of the Messiah around the world and in Israel. A couple headlines for you, just 
FYI, just stuff for, for you to know. Uh, how about this? Times of Israel reports, Rabbi of New York City LGBTQ Synagogue to rejoin U.S. Religious Freedom Commission. So President Biden picks Sharon Kleinbaum, longtime leader of Congregation Beth Simcha Torah, for a panel that works advance international freedom of belief. So on the one hand, I can understand the logic in choosing a lesbian feminist rabbi to work for religious freedom because it takes a lot of freedom to recognize someone like that, right? On the flip side, from so I understand the Biden perspective. From my perspective, it's abhorrent, number one, because God is opposed to lesbian and homosexual practice, especially for a spiritual leader. And number two, the LGBTQ community is, is constantly coming against the rights of believers to hold to what they do and challenging uh, not just the validity of, of our beliefs, but our right to hold to those beliefs. So, so this to me is, is one of the decisions that grievous, although I pray for this woman to really come to know the God of Israel. One other interesting thing going on with uh, President Biden's administration, and this is uh, Politico.com reports this, Biden's highest ranking Muslim nominee mired in GOP blockade. Uh, so the, the row over Dilawar Sayed has brought hardball tactics to a lower-profile Senate committee not known for fielding charges about xenophobia and anti-Israel bias. So there are concerns, not that this man's a Muslim. Muslims are welcome to serve in our, in our administration in various ways and can be elected and appointed. So be it. We have a, a free and diverse society. But he has alleged connections with anti-Israel Muslim groups or an anti-Israel Muslim group within America, hence the protest to his appointment. Just... Some news I thought I'd share with you on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Okay, back to the phones. We go to Chris in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brent. How are you doing? Doing fine, thanks. Uh, my question is, um, would Orthodox Jews typically take a literal understanding of uh, Genesis, and more specifically the first chapter uh, with regards to creation? They, they tend to read it differently in terms of not normally asking those questions. It's just, it's kind of an interesting thing. You do have some uh, of, of the most, most religious that will, will all hold to a young earth idea and, and the world is less than 6,000 years old and the dating of 5781 where we are on the, the, the Jewish calendar, that that is actually the literal counting back to Adam, etc. But there is widespread Jewish interpretation that understands these opening words, Breshit Baralohim Etoshimavetaaretz, not as in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but as when God began to create the heavens and the earth. And then this is an ongoing clause, and at that time the, the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God, or a wind from God, was was hovering over the face of the waters, and then God said, let there be light. So it's not right. even claiming to be from the beginning, uh, but it's just, it, there are different mindsets in approaching Scripture and how it's read. And even though some talk about the intersection of science and Genesis 1, most don't. So it's just, it's this different mindset, and it, because... 
it's being read for different purposes. In other words, it's all about Torah. It's all about God's what, relationship what you... with Israel. So, for example, the question you know, that starts, Rashi, the most famous commentator, when he starts commenting on it, he quotes from someone else saying, actually, we should have started in Exodus 12, where God gives the first Torah laws to Israel. Why does it start here? And it's to show that God is the creator and that the nations of the world don't have the right to the earth. God does. And if he wants to drive out one people and give another people their land, he can do that. So, again, it's approached from a different angle. And what, what would you make of the word rakia? Um, I think it's often translated to, to firmament or, or dome. Um, I think it's in verse chapter 1, verse 14. Yeah, so, so we, the, the word, is, you know, firmament is actually speaking of something with substance. In other words, conceptually, you could have it, say, in cognate languages in the ancient Near East, it could be kind of like a beat-out piece of metal. Metal. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's, uh, in other words, that, that, that's, that's what the word could literally mean. But it's not a conception there that there was a piece of metal, but that there was, there was something of substance separating the waters from above and the waters from beneath. And then when the, quote, windows of heaven would open, it would, it would bring an opening there and the rain would come down. There are many, many other pictures that are given in the Hebrew Bible in terms of, of how the universe is ordered, which would make you say, okay, is this meant to be taken literally or is this observational, etc.? cetera? Uh, well, but, doesn't, doesn't go, in, in that very first chapter, God say that he placed the sun, the moon, and the stars inside of the firmament? I mean, what if, you know, when you look at, I guess, biblical cosmology, uh, if you take a literal, literal interpretation, it seems to suggest a flat, non-rotating Earth with the sun, the moon, the stars inside the firmament. Is, is that something that you would hold as, as, you know, as being true to take that literal interpretation that way? Uh, perhaps you have other references, you know, to the chug of 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 the of the world, you know, the circle of the world, uh, and uh-huh. you know, is that just looking at the horizon, or is it saying that 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 uh, the earth is spherical, and then you have in Job that God hangs it on nothing, and some say, well, that's just a poetic picture. Uh, but uh, you could find, you know, Psalm 11, other pictures that, that give different descriptions. But there's no question that if you want to read it in a strictly literal way, uh, for sure, the, the ancient world, anyone that had any scientific observation believed that the sun went around the earth, right? You know, and, and it, well, doesn't doesn't scripture say that the sun rejoices like a like a, a bridegroom coming out of his chamber? And it, yeah, in, in Psalm nineteen, yeah, absolutely, right, right. So here's what you have to understand: that was universally believed in the ancient world, right? In other words, all uh, any literature that we have from anywhere in the ancient world, it it was it was geocentric, and the sun, everything goes around the earth. So if the Bible revealed that actually the earth goes around the sun, everyone, for thousands of years, right up until the, you know, the Galilean times, would have thought that the Bible was wrong. So that's why I've, I've always said it's not there to teach us science. Hmm. So that's what you have to realize. Is- in, in other words, if you're saying, well, I'm struggling with this now, not that you're struggling, but if someone said, I'm struggling based on what we know about science, well, go back a thousand years, and if the Bible said it right, everyone would have said, well, it can't be true then. In, in Moses' yeah. day, in Isaiah's day, in the days of Jesus, in the days of Augustine, and right. you know, I mean, right up until roughly you get to the time like Calvin, that you know everyone would have thought it was wrong. So, 
it's not there to teach us those things. It's there to teach us about God and how he orders the universe and how he sets things in motion certain ways, etc. And a lot of it is based on observational language. And we just have to accept, look, to this day we talk about the sun setting and the sun rising. You, you could, you know, check, you know, uh, ask Google or Siri, whatever, what time does the sun set today or what time does the sun rise? But that was, that was the, the understanding. So absolutely, if but you read it, in that way, it will contradict science today in many points, for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, if, if we take the word at face value and as, as the inspired word of God, it, it seems like you'd want to you'd want to do just that. You wouldn't want to put any other interpretation of the times, so to speak, on onto the word. You just let it say what it meant. Like, you know, you mentioned. But you have to ask. But here, but Chris, here's the key thing. Why was it written? Why was it written? What was the purpose? It wasn't to teach us science. That was never the purpose of it. So you have to go back to why it's written. What's the purpose of a cosmology? What does the rest of the Bible do with these accounts? It points to who God is. It points to how he orders his universe. It, it, it points to his victory over the powers of chaos. And then if, if you really want to do kind of a micro analysis of how so much of it parallels the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple, I mean, with explicit Hebrew repetition and imagery, and I mean, one thing after another, after another, after another, uh, then you realize there's much, much more going on here. So to me, I'd say dig deeper. Don't read it as a 21st century person looking back at what the Bible says. Look at it as to why it was written, what it meant to the biblical writers, how these things are referred to in the rest of Scripture, and then make application. Then it speaks to us just as powerfully today as it ever did. Hey, let's continue this conversation another day. God bless, friends. Remember, go to the website, askdrbrown.org. Check out all the resources waiting for you and pray about joining our support team. Another program powered by The Truth Network.